Hey, friends, on Plainspoken, I have started an initiative. It's been going, uh, I don't know, a month. I've done two interviews. It's called the Wesleyan Denominations Series, and I've interviewed uh, representatives from the Congregational Methodist Church and the Primitive Methodist Church. If you haven't seen those, I've learned so much. I've already forgotten a lot, so I need to maybe watch them again. Uh, but the, the thought behind this series is that there are a lot of churches that are Wesleyan, Arminian, and, and doctrinal heritage, but as they're leaving the United Methodist Church and questioning how they want to be affiliated, there are a lot of different groups that are already in place that have a distinctive doctrinal or ecclesiological identity that just means how they do church. And so they're, um, just because people are leaving the United Methodist Church doesn't mean they're all of one mind about how to be church. The majority are going to the Global Methodist Church. I've gone to the Global Methodist Church. But there are a lot for whom maybe the Global Methodist Church might not be the best fit. And so uh, my church has tasked me personally with researching the different options so they can make an educated decision. Um, and so this is that's partly why I've done this, but also I thought a lot of churches probably would benefit from knowing about the different bodies, uh, even if they're set on the Global Methodist Church. I just think it's good to know what the, the Christian landscape in America is right now. So I, I've reached out to other bodies. Today's episode is with the Evangelical Methodist Church, and so we're going to spend the next few minutes. I, I, don't, I told Max I'm going to go as long with him as he wants to go, uh, but this is General Superintendent Max Edwards. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good, Reverend Rickman. Good to see you, Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah. From now on, we're going to be on a first-name basis in this conversation. Right. So uh, we, we chatted just a little bit before the, uh, the the camera, the recording started. You are in southwestern Idaho right now, which I used to live in Idaho as well. Um, and you are uh, in the middle of a move. You've been traveling around, and you're about to potentially move, but you've set aside some time to to visit with me, and, and uh, we prayed together that this would be of benefit to anyone who watches. So we're of yeah. one mind about knowledge being power and, and this being a good thing. So um, I know where I always like to start off with is hearing the story. So if, if you wouldn't mind, um, in just a couple minutes, just recapitulate the story of why the Evangelical Methodist Church was formed, who formed it, and, um, and what it's developed into since the beginning. Okay, sounds great. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yes, it's a real joy uh, to be with you uh, today. I am. I, I got radically saved. My personal story in 1980 came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and have been attempting to to follow His path since then. I came to know the EMC in 1997. Uh, I had grown up in a, a Pentecostal, um, charismatic group, and. Uh, just felt that I could no longer doctrinally stay there, mm -hmm. having uh, grown in my faith and my knowledge of Scripture and and whatever. I absolutely believe in the active, present Holy Spirit that gives gifts and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I went on a personal search, and I came to the Evangelical Methodist Church in 1997 in rural North Carolina and became pastor there of of one of our member churches. Oh, you've been all over. Learned. I'm sorry? You've been all over North Carolina and now— Idaho, yeah. and then you're going to Illinois. Golly. Okay. Indiana. Keep... Oh, Indiana. Excuse me. I get those two confused. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Um, so, so I just I'll only say that as preamble to uh, my knowledge of the MC started in 1997 and uh, started pastoring there in North Carolina, but uh, have just come to really 
treasure the rich heritage of the Evangelical Methodist Church. And so to tell a little bit of its story, or as, as best I know it, in uh, in in a growing way, uh, modernism uh, is what our founder, anyway, what the era of the mid-1900s was struggling with was we might call liberalism, but they called modernism. Uh, of course, the origin of the species had been active for a hundred years, and mm -hmm. and there were just a lot of uh, a lot of secularism and humanism creeping into the church, mm -hmm. and it began to disturb our founders. Our our initial uh, elected general superintendent was Dr. J. H. Hamblin, who was pastoring Methodist churches. Of course, it wasn't uh, the the group wasn't United Methodist, as you know, until the '60s, but. Um, he was pastoring in Methodist churches in around Abilene, Texas, and, and that area of the country. And more and more and more, he began to struggle uh, with the knowledge that the church was leaving the cardinal truths of Scripture, of, of, of a, just a, a reliance on the plenary inspiration of Scripture, and Sunday school materials were becoming more and more humanistic right. and that kind yeah. of thing. So in 1946, uh, well, he, he tells his own story, and uh, in, in, in we have tiny clips, video clips of of that, but um, he, he got ill. He fell ill at one point, and so he was out of a, an appointment for a time in the Methodist Church, and um, he felt like the Lord spoke to him clearly to begin uh, to, to, to walk away from the Methodist Church and begin a small church in Abilene, Texas. And so um, he walked out of, uh, I'm not sure exactly what conference, but but somewhere down there in Texas, walked mm -hmm. out of a conference and his friends tried to convince him not to do it. I say walked out of a conference. I don't know so much that it was literally out of a meeting, but sure. out of the conference, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and just felt like the Lord was leading him to form something. Well, almost in his own words, I've heard the little video clips so many times, um, but Dr. Hamlin says something like, I didn't get home good. When people started wiring me from around the country saying, I wanted to join you. Mm. And he said, join what? I, I, I wasn't intending necessarily to form a movement. Right. Uh, he started receiving telegrams from people who felt the same, that they just could no longer abide the modernism of the, of the Methodist church. Wow. It just, you know, lightning is striking again, you know, now, uh, and, and well has been for decades really in a growing way, but now, it's kind of coming to a head, and and that's uh, you you know so much more about that than I do, but at any rate, in um, in in that part of the country, a few people gathered in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1946 in a prayer meeting, and they, after spending a day or so, a day or two in prayer, they felt clearly led of the Lord to form the Evangelical Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. Um, our founder, Dr. J.H. Hamlin, had actually referred to a letter that he had received, no, that somebody had given to him from uh, Henry Clay Morrison that said at some point somebody is going to form an evangelical Methodist church. Mm -hmm. So in, in in a way, they they just loved on that name and, yeah. and chose that name. And uh, so in 1946, the EMC or the Evangelical Methodist Church was born and um, began to grow you know, rapidly. So, so it was, it was Dr. J.H. Hamlin, also Ezekiel Vargas, Dr. Ezekiel Vargas, who um, the Methodist Evangelical Mission 
in Mexico had already formed like 25 years before. And somehow or another, Dr. Vargas and Dr. Hamlin were friends. And so there was already an international connection right okay. from the very beginning. Yeah. The MEM, the Mexican Evangelistic Mission, didn't formally become a mission partner of ours until 1956, uh, I believe it was, mid-50s, 54, 56. But, but they were with us from the very beginning. And then also another prominent name for us is Dr. Uh, Cornelius Haggard, who was a part of the founding of Azusa Pacific um, oh. University. So, okay. so those are some of the names of our early founders. Uh, certainly, Dr. J.H. Hamlin is regarded as, as the, essentially the founder of the Evangelical Methodist Church in the, in the mid-40s, so almost 80 years ago, uh, 1946. Was his title general superintendent? It was yeah. okay. So he you sit. You sit in his seat. Uh, is there just one general superintendent? There is. Okay. Uh, for the for a few years, there was there were two, and then there was a general and assistant. But for the last many years, uh, there has just been one general superintendent. Okay. So so since the Evangelical Methodist Church group was formed, it's it's spread internationally. I see that it's in. Burma, Myanmar, Canada, the Philippines, European and African nations. Um, but since it started in the U.S., has it swelled and then shrunk? Has it been on a steady incline, a steady decline? What's What's been the general trend of the EMC since, since it's beginning in the U.S.? Swelled and shrunk at least twice. Okay. Um, an, an initial swell, pretty significant. I mean relatively significant um but there were a group of folks who had a slightly different view of as i as best i've been informed of the history a slightly different view of uh perfect love of of entire sanctification mm -hmm. and um so we refer to them as the breck bill group but there was a, a essentially a group that left unreasonably good terms it wasn't it wasn't so divisive a departure uh, but in the 50s in fairly early on mm -hmm. uh, a group left us and and they're actually so we're not the only ones operating under the name evangelical methodist church interestingly really um yeah so uh so they, their group is clustered in and around pennsylvania as best i understand it um, but it's even smaller than us. We're small, um, and we'll talk about those the, side, the actual numbers sh here shortly. I'm sure. But um, so we 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 grew and then and then shrunk back when at that departure uh, from I, I don't remember his first name. Forgive me, but it's his last name was Breck Bill. He was one of the generals. I think he was at the time. I mentioned that there were two general superintendents. Mm -hmm. I believe he was a general superintendent with Dr. Hamblin. Um, because the church was growing rapidly. But then when he departed, I think since that time, there's only been one general superintendent. Okay. Um, but and then in the 60s, in the later 60s, we had another sort of, uh, I guess, division. But at any rate, we've, 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 uh, so at, I think our high watermark is somewhere in the mid two hundreds churches in the u.s okay and we have shrunk back to this point uh we had gotten down to as low as about 74 we've grown to about 85 uh, in the last five years um, okay we've had about an eight percent growth rate um during my few years grace by the gracious help of the lord certainly mm -hmm. not by anything i've done but um we've grown back to 85 churches but so there's been at least two swells and dips that i'm aware of 
And so on the Wikipedia page, it says that there are about 400 churches internationally in the in the fellowship. Does that still sound about right? It is, yes. Okay. I, I would put it at about 390. The, um, the um, COVID, of course, had a huge impact. Sure. And not so much a number of churches in the U.S., certainly a number of congregants, mm -hmm. but internationally significantly impacted the Philippines and Myanmar specifically because the COVID restrictions are so much stronger there. So we had at one point about 75, I think, or 80 preaching points in the Philippines. We only have about 35 or 40 now. So uh, mm. COVID just numerically devastated us for a time. That's rough. Um, yes, about 400 internationally. Well, of all the Methodist groups that I've looked at so far, I think the uh, EMC is the most diverse so far as international involvement. Um, the there, there, there are other Methodist bodies that have representatives outside of the continental U.S., but y'all really are spread out kind of admirably, and I, I would actually think that that's harder for a smaller denomination. So um, maybe, so what ha the dynamic in the United Methodist Church, which I came out of, was um, they're also present in the Philippines and Africa, Eastern Europe, some Western Europe. Um, the The dynamic that, that they created was the, the North American church is where the money was, so they carried the day and and all of the deliberation and all the representation. And to what degree does that carry over uh, in your organization as well? Or do you feel like that, that the Evangelical Methodist Church really does a, a very good job at allowing different um, nationalities to be represented in, in general church decision-making? Great question, Jeffrey. And, and I don't have a uh, I don't have a great answer. I may have an answer, but it's sure. it's not it's not where I would want it to be. Uh -huh. But truly, just by the dynamic of uh, socioeconomic status, and um, well, I, I'm not sure. I, it's really almost purely related to socioeconomics because uh, the cultures and economies of the churches that are partners of ours across the world are so depressed or repressed that um, they really can't have equal representation. Sure. We do have a newly formed conference in South Africa that probably among the all, all of the others have a higher standard of living than, say, by far, the, relatively close to U.S. Uh, standards. Um, but compared to Myanmar uh, or the Philippines or whatever, I mean, there, when we first aff affiliated the church in the Philippines, the standard pastor salary was something like 60 U.S. dollars a month. Oh, wow. So they, they live on just a dramatically smaller scale in terms of uh, in terms of their own personal economies. So I said all that to say, while it is our heart that there be equal representation uh, and we have actually crafted, just even in 2022, in our last general conference, we've recrafted some of the statements about who what what members comprise the general conference mm -hmm. to the point where any church in the whole global evangelical Methodist church could send five delegates to general conference. But practically, that's not possible, not, sure. not without help um, sure. from, say, you know, say our 50 or 60 churches in Myanmar, so they could send 
whatever that is, 300 representatives to general conference by our discipline, mm-hmm. that's not even close to feasible from a, from an economic standpoint. Right. So, so I'm giving you kind of two answers. Yeah. We've worked toward globalization. That is trying to make sure that our global partners, Myanmar, Mexico, uh, the Philippines, CFAN, we call it Christ for All Nations, which is Montreal, Paris, and uh, Central Africa, and South Africa, understand themselves as partners of ours and not just mission arms. Sure. They, they are, we, we're not the parent and they're the child. We're, we're true partners. Mm-hmm. So we've been trying to work toward that in our tonal attitude and in our doc, um, our governing documents. But, um, but again, economically, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not really feasible to, uh, to see that kind of representation be equal at our general conferences. Now, maybe if we held a general conference in Myanmar, central Mm -hmm. Myanmar, Mm -hmm. uh, the roles would be reversed. I mean, how many U S pastors would actually make the trip to Myanmar to attend a general conference? Right. Yeah. So, So some of that is just kind of logistically based that way, but but we really do. Uh, our, the previous general superintendent to me, Dr. Edward Williamson, did a good job of really trying to form global connections. And so most of our global partners, in fact, I think, in fact, I think it's true to say that all of them were not established by us. They weren't. It wasn't a mission field that we planted and grew up from the ground, mm-hmm. but we have just connected with people like-minded churches or bodies of churches that want to uh, be under the headship of of the evangelical Methodist church because of our doctrine because of our polity so um so we we have a we have a constitutional structure that allows equal representation mm-hmm. but it's just it's almost practically impossible because of economics yeah that makes sense to me the within the united methodist church uh the i i i doubt it's the the same in in your denomination, but the the majority of Methodists, more than half of all Methodists, live on the African continent. Um, American Methodists only represent, I think, about thirty five percent at this point. Yet every general conference, that's the 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 entire gathering of all the representatives every four years, has only ever been in the United States. And then when you're looking at the general boards and agencies, which are like our federal bureaucracies. Um, they do have like token membership from non-American contingencies, but the vast majority are all. Uh, so what what you're telling me is everybody has a voice at the table, regardless of where they live. What I'm telling you about the United Methodist Church is they have given disproportionate representation to uh, U.S. representatives and very much limited participation, such that really there is a. a a sense that the we're like the parent and they're like the child or they're like client states. And you're telling me there's been much more intentional effort within the EMC uh, to engage as co-equals, even if you're not co-equal financially speaking. We are really, that's, that's well said, Jeffrey. And we're, tr- we're trying to move in that direction. Unfortunately, mostly because of economics, mm-hmm. it's just not practically there yet. Right. But we have a vision for one day having more of a, of an equal partnership. I won't go into this in long detail, but we did insert two um, paragraphs in our discipline just this last general conference in 2022, where we're forming a global cabinet of superintendents and others have have led the way here. We're, we're, we're not 
we're not pioneers in this regard, uh -huh. but we're trying to essentially say to our global partners that at the highest level of, of advisory capacity, like the superintendents sometimes serve, because we don't control the money and, and that kind of thing. But at a, at a, at a leadership level, we're trying to create a table of equals where they actually even elect their own chairman for that session. And that chairman wouldn't be the global, wouldn't be the general superintendent of the general church, mm -hmm. like the seat that I'm in, yeah. that is seated by election of the delegates every four years at general conference. But in the session in which the general superintendents gather, they could elect someone from Myanmar or elect someone from the Philippines to be the chairman of that session. So that's one small way that we're trying to crack uh, the shell of, 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 of kind of, um, colonialism sort of, and, and just trying to help them understand that we want them to be, have an equal voice, you know, so, but so, we have a lot of work to do. We, you know, I don't, I don't want to present it as if we're there, we, we, but we have a vision for where we would like to be. Well, the sense I, uh, within the United Methodist Church, they, we, I was, I was a part of it, got obsessed with representation in the sense that we wanted to come up with percentages and quotas and make sure that, and I think a lot of times that that really misses the point. And I, I wonder if I get the sense from you that, that that's, even you feel the onus of being responsible in that sense, but I, I think that only comes about in a situation where you have resentment and competition and within the EMC, how, how would I be right in inferring that there isn't resentment or competition, but that international partners feel like you're genuine partners and, and they don't need to be constantly working to get the most representation that they possibly can? That That is absolutely true. Okay. There is a, a sense, I think, that we're trying to recraft that in some parts of the world, American certification, for instance, of a pastor's school or that kind of thing is just like the gold standard. Mm. And we're almost trying to even, but that's a cultural template that's hard to break. But but we're even trying to sort of weigh in on that or lean into that and say, you don't need the U.S. to, to say one of our, I just won't name them, but to one of our global conferences in particular, we're sort of trying to say to them, you don't need the U.S. to to affirm your pastor school, hold your own pastor school, make it as high quality as you can make it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and we will recognize it at, at the, um, certification or the ordination level of an elder say, um, and it doesn't have to necessarily meet the U S standard as long as it meets your standard. So mm -hmm. which we're, we're trying to help our partners see themselves as equals, even though, so I don't think there is jealousy or competition. There's almost sort of a self-imposed um, lack of confidence. That's probably a very poor way of saying it, but a lack of, uh, of, of self-value. Mm -hmm. um, they still look at the U S as being almost the mother and we're just not, we didn't, we didn't form any of these conferences that, that are partners of ours mm -hmm. and we see them as valuable and equal and, and uh, in many ways 
stronger than we are. Sure. Um, yeah. Because of the hardships and 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 turmoil that they, Myanmar in particular, has just been through so much turmoil, mm. and uh, and they have so much to teach us. Now they look to us for theological education because they don't they have so much um buddhism that wraps their culture up in a blanket sure and so they don't have the um they don't have the european and 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 catholic histories necessarily of theology in their own language so they look to us for theological education but we need to look to them for for uh sanctification and holiness because they have a just a humility of heart and a mm-hmm. genuineness that we so deeply admire. Well, and see, this is why the concept of the Church Catholic is so important, is when you have these independent churches that are so firmly located in their own culture, and they don't have a significant connection with a church in another culture, they don't, one, appreciate their own cultural heritage and the unique things that we have, but two, they don't appreciate the the traits of, of believers in other parts of the world where they, they really do have something to offer that that we don't have here. So that really is quite a blessing to be able to draw upon. Um, the uh, There are a lot of different directions I wanted to go from here, but you were right just with my first question. I really should have started off with who you are and what your story was and why it is that you can represent the tradition. And I I, I kind of came back and said, okay, so you're sitting at the, the top position in the denomination. But um, uh, coming back to uh, your own personal story, you said you were radically saved in 1980. Was that the right date? It is. And yeah. so between um, then and 1997, you were in uh, the charismatic, tra- some charismatic tradition in America. Correct. Which, you know, uh, in, in my own personal education, of course, I came to understand that really the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, really fired up out of the fire baptized Methodists. Right. The late 1800s were, was really the seedbed out of which the Pentecostal movement grew. But I didn't know that until uh, later in my education. But yeah, I got saved in 1980. I, I grew up in an amazing Christian family in Iowa. There's one more state you can uh-huh. you know, yeah. put me down yeah. for. But um, uh, but I had, my mom was killed in an automobile accident when I was 16 and kind of sent my life in a little bit of a spiral. But um, four years later, went to the University of Iowa and just was very unsaved mm-hmm. and uh, uh, came to know the Lord radically in 1980. And then I uh, relocated and began a theological education, felt a call to ministry, and um, eventually became a pastor in 1990. Um, so that's where I started my kind of ministerial time. And I pastored in that tradition for five years. Say the name and of the tradition then, again. I'm sorry. I didn't name it before. Okay. It's it's so confusing to name it, but okay. I'm not ashamed of it. But it's the International Pentecostal Church of Christ. Okay, it has nothing to do with the Church of Christ. So that's that that you know that rings in your ear, and you're like, oh, part of the Church of Christ. Now it's just two splint, two very small splinter Pentecostal movements out of the Azusa Street revival um, spread coalesced together. One was called the Pentecostal Church of Christ. One was called the IPCC, excuse me, the International Pentecostal Assemblies. And they just put their names together and it's called the IPCC. But okay. um, but they're, they're a very small splinter. And you were with them line. for six years as a pastor? Yeah, I, my wife and I both literally grew up in the group, but I pastored uh, pastored in their tradition for six years. Yeah. Well, and I, I I already get your sensibilities, and I don't I don't want to push that at all. 
to to not speak ill of any other Christian tradition. However, you were clear that there were theological doctrinal issues in that that tribe that that caused you to know that you needed to search out a different group. So, I mean, I think this is uh, the larger conversation we need to have is doctrinal distinctives of the Evangelical Methodist Church. So uh, the tradition you came out of, what was the particular doctrinal issue that you found that the the EMC was more robust and, and fitting with respect to? Great question. I it, it put to put maybe a little larger than this, but but the core of it absolutely was on the issue of the necessity of speaking in tongues mm-hmm. to be understood as being filled with the Spirit. Um, so I, I grew up in a tradition that believed that the the gift of tongues was the definite article, initial evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I could just no longer hold that view after after growth and the Holy Spirit, you know, enlightening my heart and reading Corinthians and reading the New Testament and, and coming to understand. So we we moved from that tradition and found the Evangelical Methodist Church. So the other part of your question is mm-hmm. the Evangelical Methodist Church absolutely believes in the modern day expression of, of the Holy Spirit in all his gifts. Um, given severally as he chooses. Um, that is, tongues is not has not ceased, uh, nor has healing, nor has miracles, nor has word of knowledge or 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 you know, that kind of interpretation. Um, but the the functional expressions of those can get so off course that, for instance, the Apostle Paul, right, has to write a letter correcting a church and trying to bring them back into line. Uh-huh. So we just came to to a group that uh, I mean, we found the Evangelical Methodist Church has a very robust understanding of the modern day uh, value of the gifts of the Spirit. It's just that we absolutely believe that while gifts might be counterfeited and and handled improperly, the fruit of the Spirit really can't be counterfeited. If you really want to look at a life and say that person is full of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. then look for the fruit. Look for love or joy or peace or patience or goodness or or meekness temperance right so so those are the hallmarks of a of a spirit-filled life and that's where the evangelical methodist church is we absolutely believe that the fruit of the spirit is the best if you're looking for evidence that's the best evidence of a spirit-filled life so if i were to be crass and say it sounds to me like y'all are pentecostals without necessitating tongues as the belief that that you're saved, tongues are welcome, uh, and as are all the the gifts of the spirit. Um, but but whereas a good old school Pentecostal would say you are not saved unless you are speaking in tongues, evangelical Methodists would say tongues are great and they're welcome here, but uh, they are not necessarily for salvation. Uh, you're you're pushing the needle in the sense that I wouldn't go that far. Okay. I wouldn't phrase it that way, okay. Jeffrey. I I wouldn't call us Pentecostals without uh, without the necessity of tongues. But I just be, because it's become so askew, mm-hmm. I think in in the modern church. But but like you said, the the beauty of the broadness of the body of Christ. I mm-hmm. think the Charismatics and Pentecostals provide an incredible. Um, balance in certain aspects of understanding the personhood of the Holy Spirit that maybe the uh, some of the older church traditions have lost that focused 
more exclusively on the father or the Baptist traditions that focus more exclusively on the son, mm-hmm. right? So I think the whole body of Christ is beautiful in that regard. But in terms of who the Evangelical Methodist Church is, um, we are we are not all the same either, right? Right. So across our movement, you would have people that are very much afraid of of the of the expression gifts of the Holy Spirit. I say afraid, maybe that's a little too loose sure. a tongue. That's just not um, a big part of their regular expression of faith. And you go to an anywhere evangelical Methodist church across the country, you almost surely are not going to hear the gift of tongues in a Sunday morning service. Okay. You might hear someone praying in a in a prayer language around an altar somewhere. Uh-huh. Um, but 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 we just do really believe that there is a genuine uh, gift, uh, but but we shouldn't be. Uh, again, Paul gave so much good expression about sure. about that in the Corinthian letter, where he said, "I'd rather speak five words that you understand than ten thousand that right. you don't." Yeah. So, within uh, so the in Dayton, Ohio, there's a crew that came out of the United Methodist Church and is now um, trying to have a helpful influence in the Global Methodist Church, and they've been trying to reclaim a lot of the early Methodist pneumatology, um, uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts. Um, they're, they're not going to the extreme that you'll, you'll see on TV of charismatic traditions of uh, everybody speaking in tongues all at once or running the aisles or, or that stuff, but they, they, uh, they, they took a group over to Cuba and worshiped with Cuban Methodists, which uh, are much more expressive in their worship than the average United Methodist Church in America, and very much more involved in a relationship, a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit, whom they understand to be a person rather than some impersonal force. So I kind of knew that whenever I kind of characterized my understanding of what you said, I I knew that it wouldn't be quite right on, because it's, it's clear to me as I read about your denomination that it's not all about following our feelings and no structure. Rather, there there seems to be a good deal of what a lot of people would understand to be Methodist discipline, structure, connection. Um, as you your tribe left what was at that point the Methodist Church, or Methodist Episcopal Church, there were some things that you got rid of. I, I'd be right in thinking that you got rid of the office of bishop, right? Yes. Mostly, and yes, technically, we we we, uh, but but even in our discipline, we try to explain that the title bishop is really synonymous, interchangeable with superintendent, but we generally do not use it. And now, in other in our global partners, um, South Africa is definitely the the superintendent is the bishop. Okay, um, in Canada, the same. So, and those are those are more. Um, African-based traditions, mm-hmm. Congolese Christians or South African Christians. Um, but and then in Mexico, it's completely the reverse. They would not be comfortable with the word bishop. So okay. um, but 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 you're right. Your your assessment is right. We we moved away from some of those um uh, labels and well in a general. And I might be taking liberties, but it feels it seems to me like you're trying to not fall too far in any extreme whenever it comes to High church ecclesiology, um, um, this this high respect for uh, you know this person speaks with God's voice. We need to defer to this person and jettison our our own 
thinking faculties, no, 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 we're going to have order and authority within the church with reasonable limits, but then there's also not going too far in the charismatic direction and being ruled by our feelings alone, but also walking in discipline and, and, and fellowship and not focusing too much on the self. Um, how much of that do you think... Okay, so do you think I have a good... A sober view of your group and just trying to hold all things in balance. You, what you just said is excellent. Said okay. it better than I said it. Yes, uh, th- that's it's very well thought and said. And that's that's pretty much where we are. We tr- we really try to, um, like you said, not just jettison you know, entirely mm-hmm. the the extremes of the bell shaped curve, if you will, um, but but hold things in the center and say, no, we um, like, again, on the issue of tongues, for instance, Paul says at the end of one of the chapters, as it's, as the chapters are broken up, do not forbid to speak with tongues. We don't, we don't forbid it, but we're also not encouraging the public expression of it all the time because it, it seems to provide confusion more often. So anyway, and, and not just that issue, but, um, but you're a hundred percent right. We we're, tr- we're trying to be people of balance and, and people of, uh, of method. We do, we do value structure and, and methodism in, in that sense. Um, but yeah, not, we just don't want to live on the polar extremes. So, so something that I think y'all have in common with the United Methodist church is, it's not just a bare bones operation where it's local church pastors and local churches, but there does seem to be some denominational structure that exists in between gatherings. Am I right to get that impression? Yes. Are there yeah. full time employees that are not appointed in local churches? Yes. Okay. Um, we have. So th- there are four. There are five uh, elected offices that are. Uh, one is the general secretary at headquarters. We're a small organization, so yeah. we don't have. Uh, a huge uh, machine to run, but we do have one elected general secretary treasurer who has a, a set of office employees, not many, three or four uh, yeah. that work for him. And then we have uh, the general superintendent, myself, uh, titled the international general superintendent. They added the international at some point because of our globalization. Um, so I not only am the general superintendent of the USA conference, but I'm the international general superintendent of the entire denomination. And then we have three, what you're asking about, then we have three conference superintendents, we refer to them as, and that has to do with a restructure that happened in 2010. It's a little long to tell, but we have three superintendents who are regional, who who serve, uh, who pastor pastors and serve various parts of the country that work for me and with me. Within the United Methodist Church, one of the things that just became abundantly clear was there was a bureaucracy that was inherited, but uh, it just continued to feed itself at the expense of the local church. There, there's this notion that once you create a certain level of infrastructure, it it becomes a, a beast that that requires feeding. Um, have you noticed bureaucracy within the EMC growing, or has it maintained a, a stasis since found, found, founding? Um. Jeffrey, that would be tough to answer without going into the deep history of the reorganization of 2010. But let me try to give you just a thimbleful and say that in the from the 60s and 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, there were well, even before that, but 
at different times, there have been multiple conferences. Like in the initial growth, there was like an Eastern conference and a Western conference. And then there are all kinds of districts. We at one time even had a California district just by itself. Mm -hmm. But um, but when I stepped in the MC in 1997, there were six districts, Northwest, Southwest, Central Lakes, Mid-States, Northeast, and Southeast. You, so you almost just take the country and divide it almost into six mm -hmm. equal chunks, right. yeah. six districts. In 2010, we eliminated those districts. We had, we had shrunk in number to the point where the, some of those districts just couldn't handle their own, couldn't employ their own um, district superintendent mm -hmm. and some other dysfunctions. And so we, in 2010, after about 10 years of looking at how to redistrict ourselves, we decided to just eliminate the district boundaries and go to one conference. Okay. So since 2010, we've just been one conference with three, uh, well, sorry. I'm, Including you, it's four. To answer your questions, we initially had four yeah. in 2010 that served the whole conference. Yeah. They could go anywhere. They didn't have a district boundary to worry about. Mm -hmm. Then in 2014, we dropped to three. And so um, it, every general conference, it's in, it's up to the conference to determine how many general or conference superintendents they wish to have. And that's usually just budget driven, right? I mean, mm -hmm. but, but numeric driven too, in terms of how many churches need to be served. Um, the challenge of the MC is I see it, one of the, I'm sorry, logistic challenges or lots of spiritual challenges, sure. but in, in the U S is we have 85 churches, but we're in the Olympic peninsula of Washington and Florida. We're in New York and San Diego. So we, if we had, if we had we 85 had churches yeah. in, in, uh, in, in Illinois, Indiana and Ohio, we'd have a ball because mm -hmm. we could meet together more often and that kind of thing. But we're literally spread out, and uh, and yet we're small in numbers. So the conference superintendents, the challenge that they have is to is to cordon off their time and 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 spread themselves around. But the answer to your question, I'm 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 chasing rabbits, I think, in a sense. But we 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 don't have a uh, constitutionally and, and, and from their discipline, we're pretty fluid in terms of how that middle management kind of piece, um, we can sort of craft it, uh, grow it, ex expand it, shrink it pretty easily. And we actually have, like I said, we were four for one quadrinium, three for one quadrinium. Um, we are back. We're still at three in 2022, but as we can, if we continue to grow, we may look at going back to four. So, 